Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Ahrens. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And today I've got the pleasure to be joined by a stellar cast of co-hosts. I've got here with me Sharon Bessel. She's a professor at Crawford School and also the section editor for Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section and also the lead of the ANU Individual Deprivation Measure. Hi, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Julia. Great. Good to be here again. Great to have you on the pod as always, Sharon. And also we've got Sue Ingram here. She is an honorary senior policy fellow at the ANU College of Asia and the Pacific, and she brings a wide experience in public policy, peace building and international development, including 16 years as a senior executive in various social policy areas of the Australian government, senior appointments in UN peacekeeping missions in Timor-Leste before and after the independence. Hi, Sue. Great hi, to have you. Hi, Julia. It's great to be with you. Fantastic. Great to have you, Sue. So our regular listeners will know that each week we have a bit of a look at this week's most pressing policy issues. And I think we all agree that we can't go past last night's debate between Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten. Sharon, what do you think of it? Yeah, I agree that it's it's hard not to comment on such an important part of the election. I thought it was a really interesting debate. Not so much for what was said, but in some ways what wasn't said. And to me, the debate reinforced what I think is is happening throughout this election campaign. And that is the differentiation between the way in which the two major parties are dealing with policy issues. So in the debate, I think Bill Shorten was trying to put forward a suite of policy issues that are actually really important, that are actually about a vision for the future of Australia. And a set of policies that will make a difference to the way in which Australia moves forward. And whether you agree with those policies or not, I think what's important is the fact that policy proposals are being put forward another centrepiece of Labor's campaign this way this time around. And that's quite different from previous election campaigns when we've kind of had Tweedledum and Tweedledee and both major parties have wanted to be small targets. But what I think we see from Liberal and what we saw from Scott Morrison last night was much less in terms of the detail of policy, much less in terms of a vision for Australia, but very much focusing on um, Labor's done a bad job in the past, Labor will do a bad job in the future, and the economy's important, but not much detail sitting under that. So I think this is really interesting because we actually have a choice to make about a, a fairly detailed set of policies moving forward um, and perhaps much less in terms of policy detail. What did you think about that, Sue? 
I have to confess, Julia, I didn't see the debate last night, but not for lack of interest. And uh, I'm very struck by what Sharon is saying about uh, the degree of elaboration of policy, because I would hope that a thinking, thoughtful electorate actually chooses uh, their local members, chooses their senators, and thinks about a prospective government in terms of what it's actually going to deliver for the Australian people, what its vision for Australia is. And vision is something really important. It's more than just three years, but it's where Australia is going to be taken in the future and whether that's a direction that we are seeking as voters. Sharon, you talked a bit about how um, particularly Scott Morrison was tiptoeing a bit around and was a bit light on the details in this discussion. And Sue, you said that you were hoping that people make an informed and thoughtful decision. If we're so light on the details, are we going to get a thoughtful decision in this election from voters? Well, I think that's a really interesting question. And this is where I see this very clear choice um, emerging for voters. And I'm not sure it's so much that um, Scott Morrison and the coalition are are tiptoeing around. In some of their messages, they're actually very strong and powerful. But to me, I don't see detail of policy in those messages. And I don't see a vision being laid out beyond we need a strong economy and we need lower taxation. Now, there are really important policy issues underlying those those messages, but I don't see that level of detail being engaged in. I think Labor is doing more in terms of laying out um, those those policies. And this is where we will see in something of an interesting natural experiment, which way voters go, whether they are persuaded by what to me looks a little more like sloganeering or whether they will be persuaded by much deeper thinking around the policy and the vision. Um, And I hope, as Sue says, that voters really think deeply about the choices because when when you kind of take away all of the hype around the elections, this matters. This matters to the future of the country um, and Australia needs a vision going forward. So I think this is a fundamentally important election. I think we're all very, very intrigued on how this will all play out in the end. Thank you for your thoughts on that. Before we get started with the pod, we want to invite you to join our Facebook podcast gang. We still have some spots available for you. In this space, you can get together with other listeners and also our presenters to have a chat and also, particularly that, share your thoughts on what we should discuss next on our podcast. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and come and join our gang. Today on the pod, we want to have a look at the increasing contestation that Timor-Leste has seen around the formation and operation of governments over the last two years and its impact on public policy. Timor-Leste's election in July 2017 saw the end of several years of consensus democracy, in air quotes, with the appointment of a minority government, concerted parliamentary obstruction of the government's program, and a decision by the president to call fresh elections for May 2018. After those elections, the president refused to appoint a number of new the new prime minister's nominations for executive positions, a standoff that really continues still until today. At the same time, Timor-Leste is facing a number of significant policy challenges. Fiscal security in the medium term is under threat and the country's massive youth bulge 
might both be a potential strength and a threat. So today we want to ask, what has been the impact of two years of political discord on the political system and public policy in Timor-Leste? And what are some of the big policy issues that the government needs to address? We've got a great lineup to answer some of these questions, haven't we, Sue? We certainly have, and uh, let me introduce them to you. Uh, first, we have Antonio Sampaio. Antonio is uh, a journalist, and he's been covering Timor-Leste since 1990. And he's reported for most of the Portuguese-written press, and in Australia for News Limited, newspapers, including The Australian, and for SBS Radio and Television. And he's currently um, Lusa Bureau Chief based in Dili. Um, our second guest is uh, Kameneza dos Santos Monteiro, and she's the Director for Policy and Institutional Strengthening at the Asia Foundation in Timor-Leste. And before joining the Asian the Asia Foundation, Kameneza worked as advisor to the Prime Minister, Rui Arujo, on public policy and institutional reforms, and she's also worked as a senior officer on AusAid's governance and development program. And finally, we have Professor Mike Leach, uh, Professor in Politics and International Relations at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne. Um, and Mike has researched and published widely on the politics and history of Timor-Leste, including most recently um, a book entitled Nation Building and National Identity in Timor-Leste. And he was previously on our podcast from the middle of last year, uh, entitled Cause for Hope as Ruach Takes the Reins in Timor-Leste. Thank you, Sue. That sounds really like a stellar lineup, and I really can't wait for the discussion. But before we get started, a quick reminder to our listeners to get in touch with us. We always love hearing from you. You can reach us on Facebook, where we are Policy Forum Pod, on Twitter, where we are at APPS Policy Forum, or do it the old-fashioned way and shoot us an email on podcast at policyforum.com. And stick around for after the main interview because we'll be going over some of your questions, comments and suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, let's hear from our panelists. Carmen, welcome. Thank you. And Antonio, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Mike. Glad to be here. And for Mike, you, it's, it's a welcome back. So it is th- a welcome back. I was here you. for the previous uh, podcast of the TMLSA update. Yeah. Thank you for coming back again. And thank you to all of you for joining us today. Now, in the, the last two years, Timor-Leste has seen two parliamentary elections and what has, has been described as the collapse of the politics of national consensus that marked the previous several years. I wanted to begin by asking each of you how... Has the political system in Timor-Leste weathered the last two years of this political discord? So, Carmen, first to you, how would you assess what's happened over the past couple of years? I think what happened the last couple of years, I mean, the last two years, um, it has certainly um, destroyed the uh, political unity to some extent. But and 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 then to that extent, it has also um, 
increased the sentiment of bipartisan partisan really high and now uh, people started to kind of group themselves into their political parties and their ability to actually truly communicate beyond the political parties has been diminished because of the two um the last two years um elections and um, the conflict between the top leaderships has contributed to that level of um, disappointment to each of the political party. I mean, each has their own egos and it has reduced uh, more of discussion, if you like, or debate between uh, cross parties. Antonio, what's, uh, and what's your assessment of what that means? I, I, I think terms? I agree with Carmen. There has been an increased polarization of uh, Timorese society led by a number of very powerful voices in the history of the country and in the political history of the country. And that has meant that people have become entrenched into supporting their own parties or their own party, party structures. This has damaged this recognition that because of the lack of human resources that the country has faced and continues to face, that the only way for the country to move forward is if you maximize the use of all resources across all parties. So that has been significant in terms of the shift over the last couple of years. Uh, On the other side, however, it has been positive to show that the system somehow works. Early elections were called, that there was an actual balance, a constitutional operational balance put into place that shows the system is there for a reason. It was designed for with, with an objective in mind. It was tested. It was proven that it worked. So I think now we just need the politicians to rise to the level of the system that they're part of and, 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 and return to a, an idea of this maximization of, of resources of the country. I think the international community, particularly that based in Dili, also has to accept some responsibility for what it did in the last couple of years, uh, particularly for the fact that it uh, sold the discourse that if it did not have an effective uh, opposition as, as we are used to outside, that if you had consensus-based politics within parliament, however debate, how much debate you had, that then that meant it wasn't a real democratic system. Uh, That was a fallacy, and it led to further splits when they were no longer necessary at this stage of the development of the country. Um, Mike, I'm really interested in Antonio's point there of the role that the international community plays based on assumptions of what democracy looks like mm, sure. from outside and based on outside models. And of course, Timor is a, is a is a young country, just 20 years of independence. The fact that those processes appear to be robust and are working is, is a positive thing. But what's your sense, Mike, of that role that the international community played around consensus politics over the past couple of years? Well, I, think, <clears throat> I think Antonio makes a good point. Um, what you saw during the occupation was an unprecedented level of political unity between the Timorese political parties who had been in conflict in the 1970s and you saw them brought together under Shinana Guzmao's leadership. And then you saw an international state-building mission come in and it was an unprecedented um, set of events. And we're, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of all those events this year with uh, the UN directly governing a territory for about two and a half years. Amazing series of events. But of course, what the international community then does is bring in a kind of model of democracy that is competitive multi-party democracy, 
which has a lot of positives, a lot of strengths, um, and it's the conventional way to do democracy. But, of course, in a post-conflict society, there was such a premium on political unity um, as well that uh, some of those aspects of political unity that were very forged in very difficult circumstances were deliberately broken up. <clears throat> and, of course, that led to um, a resurgence of some political enmities and conflicts that had been buried. For, for 20 years or so. So it's a complicated picture. Yes, that is how you do democracy. Uh, but of course, you also bring conflict and not every society has the kind of contextual background and history to be able to handle that. And so more recently, you know, I think Antonio is right. The, the international commentariat, if you like, was very strong on the point that this national unity government, which I'd actually call a power sharing executive between CNRT and Frontland had kept things very stable from about 2015 to 17. Uh, broke up and part of the context was internal Timorese politics but part of it was also the external commentary at saying where's the opposition uh, to this um, and of course it was making a, a historic kind of connection reuniting the the resistance at, uh, you know added as it had broken apart again uh, after 2001 it was being reunited this was quite an important moment in Timorese political history and the international community was pretty down on it really. So, uh, yeah, the positives and, and negatives, yeah. Let me now just pick up on one aspect of that interplay between political system and uh, political parties. Um, Timor-Leste, of course, has a semi-presidential system and over the first 15 years of its um, uh, of its life as an independent state, um, the president was actually independent, no party allegiance. In 2017, we had um, a president elected uh, who is from a political party? Very holds a very prominent role in that uh, in the organisation of that political party, and he's since the 2018 election, uh, there is a parliament made up of parties that are opposed to his party. His party is actually in opposition. Um, and so, Mike, perhaps you could talk a little bit to us about um, what you see as the the impact of this um, first real experience of, of cohabitation, um, the situation where you have a, a president from one political party and that political party is actually in opposition to the governing coalition. Yeah, sure. So it's not something that um, I mean, your listeners, if they're from a parliamentary system like Australia, are familiar with. But Timor Leste has a semi-presidential system, and that means they have a divided executive power. So there is a directly elected president uh, who has certain powers. Um, the East Timorese president is probably one of the weaker ones by the standards of semi-presidential systems. And then they have a prime minister, which Australian listeners would be much more familiar with, and they get to power in the same way, having a majority in the parliament. And ex the executive functions are divided between those uh, two figures. Now, what's happened, as you just pointed out, is for the first time in Timorese constitutional history, which is a relatively short period, there's a president from one party and a government from a series of parties that are in opposition to that. That's called cohabitation. So people in Europe and France, Portugal are familiar with this situation. It's unusual for Timor-Leste. As you pointed out, Timor-Leste's uh, previous presidents were all you know, formally independents. They may have had certain allegiances, but they were formally uh, independent. Now, Luolo is from Fretland. His election is an artifact of the very the very last artifact of that period of national unity. So the reason that he's president is not only because he got the support of Fretland, but he also got the support of Shinana Guzmao and CNRT. And that was kind of the last act of that unusual era of national unity. So, But he's in power for five years now. 
There's subsequently been uh, – there was a Fretland government in 2017, a minority government. That government fell. Now there's an AMP government. So they're at, at loggerheads. And what we've seen is this is now testing the Timorese semi-presidential system. The president is showing how much power uh, the president can have under this system. And the, I suppose the emblematic thing that we've seen has been the non-appointment of ministers in the government. Uh, so the president has refused to appoint certain ministers from the CNRT, citing moral concerns or corruption allegations against those people. And it's turned out that the president does, in effect, have that power to not appoint um, ministers. That was news to a lot of people uh, because it's hard to bring that, make it justiciable. To bring that to the to to the Supreme Court, in effect, that power exists until the president is has to go to election again. So we're seeing uh, this president has shown that the, that he is prepared to find out what the presidential powers are uh, in extremis, as it were. And uh, we're learning a lot more about the uh, the presidential the semi presidential system uh, in this period of cohabitation. But it may be an unusual period because his election was an unusual election. Uh, it may be difficult in future to get a partisan president elected. But in this time, we're learning a lot about the Timorese constitution. Indeed we are. And it's striking that uh, it's now almost 10 months since the election, uh, the last election in uh, July 2018. But uh, because of this standoff between the president and the prime minister, uh, there are still about nine key positions in the executive government that uh, are still unfilled. And if I could ask this of you, Carmen, um, how is this standoff over executive appointments being managed on the ground and what are the consequences we're feeling? Uh, I think um, the way it's been managed, uh, though the prime minister coming out to say that um, even if the, the chair is actually three legs, it's able to actually stand still and and continue providing a service a government should be. Uh, in reality, if, if we dig down a little bit deeper, um, most of these portfolios um, areas are actually uh, – losing out of the uh, resource allocations. For example, um, the Ministry of Tourism um, and Trade, um, because it's a, com a combined ministry from the previous uh, government, um, there is no allocation for, well, there is 0.2 million allocation for the tourism sector, for example. Um, and then we have uh, the Ministry of Health, um, which is supposed to, like, the government priority was, like, to invest more on the health sector, but because there is no minister to actually really defend the budget of the Ministry of Health, we end up having a reduced budget in the health sector. So um, I think most of these um, issues are in terms of resource allocation, has, it has really affected the areas where the ministry is not, um, hasn't been appointed. Um, and also it has created um, a bit of confusion within the current government because some minister, ministries uh, end up getting a huge um portfolio. And so then they st started to tap into each other's portfolio and it, then it creates confusion. And when it creates confusion at the ministerial level, it does also create confusion, uh, huge confusion at the bureaucrats level. So they become uncertain about who they actually reporting to. Um, and then at the end of the day, no one really actually responsible for the portfolio when the minister is absent. So it does create a lot of um, issues and challenge for service deliveries um, so far. 
I think, Carmen, what you've mapped out there is is a fairly worrying scenario in terms of the impacts on particular portfolios and particular departments, you know, health specifically. You no, know, that's that's very worrying. And I guess, you know, the, the we would expect those political divisions to be affecting the performance of government right across the board. Antonio, how do you see the impacts of the political division in terms of the performance across government and the capacity of government to tackle some critical issues? We've heard a little about health, but are there other areas of public policy that, that you're concerned about? I think generally when you are coming in after such an antagonistic campaign and such an intense polarisation of views of society, you need a government, however strong your majority is, that is cohesive, that works well, that is able to truly act to appease the concerns that were raised during this polarisation campaign. And the fact that you are not able to do that as a government uh, when your biggest party is, uh, you know, almost uh, unrepresented in this government, uh, you've only got really two ministers there uh, that are from CNRT uh, because uh, the the arguments the president has used to my, in my view, uh, increasingly with less justification or less constitutional arguments to do so, because if I do a small parenthesis here, the constitutional um, uh, uh, guarantees of political rights ensure that people should be able to exercise their political rights and they are being curtailed by this decision based on the supposition of some uh, suspicions of uh, judicial processes, which we still you know, almost 10 months down the track, we're yet to see materialized. So close bracket. When the government was being set up and people were talking about such a large size government, uh, the justification uh, by people like uh, Babu, uh, the current foreign minister from CNRT or Fidelis from PLP, was that you needed a big government because public administration was weak. And so you need that guidance from ministers. When you have a weak administration and then the only or most of the government ministers with experience are not in the government, are not there, not just to guide the ministries, but to guide the vision, to guide the overall uh, relationship of the Council of Ministers with the rest of the public administration, you end up with a weak government. And that leads to cleavage within the, the the coalition itself. You see that in government and in parliament, but you're starting to see that in the party machines themselves and that reflected back on public administration. And so that aim that a majority government um, would help um, you know, resettle the country, tranquilize people, things like that hasn't, hasn't occurred. And in fact, what you are seeing is you're starting to see splits within the parties again um, because uh, th this government is perceived as not being totally effective. I think what you're mapping out is some, some really deep governance challenges yes. that are existing at the moment. And if we look forward, Carmen, what do you see as some of the biggest public policy challenges facing Timor Leste and how optimistic are you about whether those public policy challenges can be addressed given the the, the situation that the country's in at the moment? Uh, I think few of the, um, I mean, I'll, I'll go for three points of the biggest uh, public policy challenges in the countries. I think one of them is acknowledging that um, 25%, sorry, 70% of the populations are actually under 25 and 50% of those are actually under 50. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Under 17. Um, and, and then the high unemployment um, rate in, in the country, I think that is a huge challenge of the, any government, um, any good management to actually manage that. Um, in addition to that, we are a country that um, heavily dependent on oil and petroleum, and we only have uh, 15 billion as of now in the bank, in our reserve bank. And uh, we have the, the spending um the current spending um, in a pattern which is quite high and we don't have additional income um, from other sectors to actually build, in, um, fill the gaps of the, uh, the, physical, um, the physical gap aside from the petroleum. I think these are huge issues and, it's, um, and then it's lead to government's ability to diversify the economy, looking at different uh, potentials such as agriculture or tourism or other manufacturers that can create economic activities so that we can accommodate jobs for uh, our younger generations because the younger generations are blessing if we can manage well with good education system supporting it um, and also with good health system. But if we are unable to actually manage it well and make the right investment from the little resource that we have at the moment, I think we, we are... Um, we will be in huge trouble. But I am optimistic. Um, I'm hoping that um, it's something that the government, the current government is looking at and learning and hoping that they will find ways to um, to look at a, a potential investment that can fill the gaps, the, con- the physical gap from um, petroleum uh, revenue to other source of revenue. What I find really interesting is the theme that's come up a couple of times already is that what might be best for Timor and the context there is not necessarily what's being prescribed by um, the international community or by, by donors or international agencies. Antonio, what's your assessment of those policy challenges? And I'd be really keen to hear from, from you whether you're, you're also concerned about some of the policy prescriptions from um, international players. Um, I think the concern with the international impact in post-conflict countries is not new to Timor. It has always been there. The fear of copy-paste approaches uh, that, um, for example, affected some of the policies of the World Bank and so on in, in Timor uh, um, are at play, even though it is worthy of note that the World Bank itself shifted some way of operating because of the experience it had had in Timor. That didn't mean that all he did was adequate to the country. And I give an example, the community radio program, which was a significant amount of money spent on trying to establish community radios. While, for example, it would have been much useful in terms of national cohesion and of actually developing the media to have regional broadcast centers for a good national broadcaster because the concerns it would unify the country could still have local language contents all these sort of things so there are solutions that could be more uh, local that would provide better approaches i think 
Timor, like other post-conflict countries, has, has suffered from the fact of the do-good uh, approach of people coming into the country and saying uh, that they've got the litmus test for what democracy is or what government should be or or so on. And that has characterized the, the, the beginning of the setting up of the state. And a lot of that has been positive in terms of institutional building. But I think now is the time uh, when the Timorese themselves uh, are better trained. You have more stronger, more varied voices in the Timorese community to bring new ideas to the table to challenge some of this. There is a discourse against government spending, for example. Government continues to be the source of the economic development of the country, whether people like it or not. So, And we saw that. The government stopped spending in the last two years and the economy died. So you, you, you it, it's just you have to if you are concerned with Timor, you have to know the reality of the country and you have to try and come in with your resources, talking to the local people and trying to find out a local solution that fits better to what you are trying to resolve rather than copy-paste approaches. Mike, you've already touched on uh, Timor lists. Interesting demography. Um, I think it's the 15th youngest country in the world. Um, um, the median age is 17.4 years. Um, I mean, that in itself presents some uh, very interesting um, policy challenges. And I'm wondering if you could explain to me a little about how that demography actually plays out in Timor-Leste politics and also its impact on policymaking. Yeah, well, we've talked a little bit about the economic challenges of, of that already. <clears throat> the political challenges are interesting. What you do see is a uh, shifting party landscape as a result. So we've seen in the last couple of elections the emergence of two new parties, which are based on younger voters, uh, not exclusively younger voters, although one Kunto is pretty strongly based on younger voters. Uh, PLP, another one emerged, has got a very strong support base among younger voters, though not exclusively. So you are seeing the old verities, the old truths of the uh, party system um, shaken up by this. You're also seeing a generation coming through that does not remember the Indonesian occupation. Uh, and so they will have different ideas of East Timorese history. They'll have different ideas of where of the future. They'll have uh, different um, understandings of the sort of conflicts that went on inside Timorese society at that time. Uh, they're not necessarily going to be caught up in some of the old divisions that we see with the 1975 generation that are still affecting Timorese politics today very strongly. In fact, they're the overwhelming factor in, in many ways. So, you know, you are seeing that change. And the, the thing about the Timorese election, in the last election, one in five voters or something like that had never voted before. 20%. Extraordinarily large percentage. You would never see anything like that in Australia with our system, you know, uh, and our demography. Uh, it'd be, that'd be more like 3 or 4%. So 20% were voting for the first time in the last election. That, what that means is that um, the Timorese party system is subject uh, to change in, in a way that some other countries are not. You can see new trends emerging, new political issues emerging, new constituencies uh, emerging. So there, there's some of the political implications of a, of a young population. Of course, the other one is if you have high unemployment, <clears throat> there is a correlation all around the world. This has nothing to do with Timor particularly between uh, particularly unemployed young men uh, in cities and issues of um, political and 
social stability. So there's a very strong relationship between those things, and which highlights the need to provide jobs and employment and training opportunities for young people as they come through the system because some of the political consequences of that are quite, can be quite negative. Mike, you talked about the way in which some of the parties are targeting, targeting, seeking to attract the support of and the interest of younger voters. And of course, the political leadership or the dominant figures in um, Timor's political leadership remain those who led the independence struggle um, in the, the 70s, 80s and into the 90s. And there have been calls um, for a transition in leadership to a younger generation. And I'm wondering, Antonio, perhaps your views on who the emerging leaders are and whether that younger generation does have the space to move into political leadership or whether the the older generation are kind of holding on to that space for themselves. I think it is a misconception to think there hasn't been a transition. It's just that the younger generation is older than perhaps other younger generations would think. Uh, the, 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 that transition has happened to the what we may call the Renatil generation, people that are now 40, 45, 50. That's the new generation coming in, and they are significantly important for the future of Timor because they are the link between this past and the resistance and all the principles that have guided Timor for many years and also these views of modernity, of contemporary views, these further studies, this connection to new issues, to new policy uh, attitudes and so on. So uh, the, the issue has been this discussion of the Gerasong Fong or the new generation has been misguided because th this demography pressures has, has somehow given the idea that 20, 20 something year olds should be guiding the country. And that's it, I think it's actually quite dangerous to, to expect that to happen. Uh, however, you know, young people are important as a voice. They are not able with their experience to guide Timor. Timor is a very complex society and you require somebody that still has their connection to the past. The past becomes very important because at the moment it is the only thing they have had, this holding on to the ideas of the past, of the struggle, of the history, of the wanting to be free that has guided them. And now this idea of like, we keep hearing this message, we freed the country, now let's free the people. This transition, this idea that the struggle is not over. And the older generation themselves, um, they feel that the sentence was uh, nation or death, and they think nation is yet to be completed. So it's, it, I, I think it would be a fallacy to expect to see Shanana fishing out, relaxing, or see uh, Maria Katiri seeing out at the cinema, although he does that, or going out for walks, when there is still real concerns. And, and not only that, that they continue to be approached to offer solutions to this issue is not saying like these young people say, oh, no, no, we, we, we want, the, you know, the old generation to go. But anything, anytime there's a problem, they, they keep calling them back and they keep wanting them to be involved. So uh, I think we should stop the misconception of this jettison phone. I think it was just a debate also to fitting into this new party model happening. I agree with what you say. There's new parties. But because of the demographic makeup of the country, every party is young party because every party has got a lot of young people among them. Fretland, which was the, you know, the oldest, more established party, only got the result it got because it campaigned well among young people. So you could argue that it's just as much a young party as PLP, which is the newest party to be created. And this, we cannot escape this. The, the, the government perhaps... Today, it is 
not as effective because it has jumped too fast, leaving behind some of these Renatil people. There's a lot of Renatil, this second generation, skilled, qualified people that were in government somehow during this, you know, cohabitation of political parties <laughs> uh, of, you know, not this national unity, but this sharing of power. And they are outside of the framework of power now. And we, we are missing out on their talent and, and their contribution to the country. Carmen, what's, what's your assessment of the role that the, the older generations are playing, both the, the generation that was so important in the struggle for independence, but also the second generation that Antonio is talking about now being kind of outside of decision making? I think my my assessment to that um, the older generation is actually similar to what um, Antonio has described. I think um, whether we actually like it or not, um, and I'm probably one of them that actually always goes and talk about like uh, it's time for uh, Jerusalem phone. Um, the fact is that we are actually going back to this old generation seeking for advice, and we are actually waiting for their words before we actually say anything. But I think. Um, it's true. It's quite a misconception to actually say that um, the older generation is still dominating the stage of politics. I think there is quite a mix of old and young generation, in fact, far younger generation um, in the political stage in Timor, um, both previously and at the moment, particularly at the moment, is really high. We have a lot of young, really young um, age generation, not even a Renatil generation, but um, non-Renatil, people who were Probably just graduated in nineteen, uh, graduated high school in ninety nine, and never have exposure or experience in other places, or um, you know, uh, experience working in a public administration. So we actually have the political stage is open for everyone now. To call this uh, that's when none of actually. Any, no, no one in politics I could actually um, wanting to make the political call for a decision making unless they always look at like two man. Um, you know, it's it's and so it's kind of so as almost it's a two man so's of um, so, but it's actually not that. It's it's beyond that in a way. People goes to if you talk to uh, CNRT people about why haven't they actually come with a, a, an, an alternative list of the nine ministers, and the response you will get will will be. We'll wait for the uh, Mambod, the Big Brother, uh, to sort that out, and. We will then ask the other part, the threatening, like, why is it that, you know, a president hasn't changed his mind to actually just um, accept these things? And they were like, well, we let's wait for, like, um, the secretary general to actually have his word. Maybe it's not. I mean, this is a perception. It's not necessarily the truth, but these are the perceptions that form people's opinions and mind. And it's actually certainly created the political stage as is very dominant by two male when I think there is a lot of setting of power uh, across different generation. It's been a fascinating discussion and I think we could continue this discussion for, for much longer. But in closing, I wanted to ask each of you one question, uh, perhaps beginning with you, Mike. If you had one piece of advice for the leadership of, of Timor-Leste in terms of how to govern in the interests of all of the Timorese people, what would that one piece of advice be? 
the million dollar question, uh, isn't it? <laughs> oh, well, I wouldn't presume to give advice to the Timorese leadership. But what I would say is that there's been a lot of talk for a lot of years about decentralization. It really is essential. And we're seeing the benefits in Indonesia now of decentralization. They have had a decentralization process. All the issues that we've seen in Timor of a growing population in Delhi, people coming in for those economic opportunities, they are all linked to the failure to do regional development. Uh, to the failure to decentralise. And, of course, Timor has a proportional representation system. It doesn't have local members for those districts, so that makes it even more important that there are municipal governments out there that have a budget and can focus on those developing those local areas because they will generate the economic opportunities that mean young people stay in those areas. It was like Antonio was saying before about a radio. You could have the national radio have its office there. Other development opportunities... In the districts, um, the decentralization agenda has been one that's been on the books for 20 years and it's never really happened. Uh, and I think that would be a really important thing for Timor to achieve sometime in the next decade. Antonio. Uh, I, I, I agree. I, I first of all, I agree with this suggestion. I don't, I also don't presume to give advice to the Timorese, but, but I think one, one area where I think a, a shift could have huge immediate impact is in a labor intensive government spending. This idea that the government can only do either infrastructure or either other spending is a fallacy. Timor needs to do everything. So he needs to do infrastructure, which might have a, a high intensive labor for a period of time, but then could also continue to have labor because you need to maintain it, you need to clean it, you need, it's a very hard climate-wise country uh, in terms of, for example, roads. So you should have brigades of people maintaining it. You, you could have better urban uh, uh, brigades working on maintenance of Dili, which has a risk of becoming, um, you know, uh, it could become very fast uh, a less uh, livable city than it is at the moment. So I think you could uh, work on policies that create and generate jobs fast if you stop thinking that you have to have an end or approach and just do a both approach work on improving infrastructures in health and education uh, people have, have have talked about the lack of infrastructure in these things you could do this with some labor intensive practices this will also decentralized uh, resources it would help keep people in their local areas and i think this would be a strong way to then create an alternative economic uh, system you would still be initially government dependent but everything is government dependent now so just try to do both things at once and Carmen, let me invite you to give the last word, the last word for this podcast at least <laughs> on what your advice might be. Sure. Um, I think my I wouldn't have a new advice. In fact, what I will encourage the government uh, to do is actually to do what they have said that they wanted to invest on. They wanted to invest on education and agriculture and to invest uh, wisely in that and actually to invest well with all the resources they had to actually make it work well. And yeah, I think that's... I mean, they have it, they know it, they don't need any other advice, they just have to do it. It's been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for both the realistic assessment, but also the optimism looking forward. I think in all of this, we need to keep in mind that Timor is a very young country, 20 years of since independence. So I think, um, importantly, with, with that 
youth bulge coming through, that's also a cause for optimism in terms of the future of the country. So let me thank each of you very much for joining us today. Comenza Dos Santos Monteira, Antonio Sampaio and Mike Leach, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guests for joining us today and a reminder to our listeners to stick around after the main interview because we're going to be going over some of your questions, some of your comments and some of your fantastic suggestions for future podcasts. So don't go away. Can you hear it? That's the sizzle of an Australian election heating up. And as both major parties cook up a recipe to win the vote, make sure you're across all the best analysis and insight with Mark Kenny's Democracy Sausage. Each week I'll be chatting with experts about the election week that was and what might be on the menu next. We'll chew the fat over the biggest announcements and developments and dive deeper than the headlines. So join me, Mark Kenny, each Monday for Mark Kenny's Democracy Sausage. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net forward slash podcasts. Welcome back and thank you to our guests. A fantastic discussion that we had today and my main takeaway I think would be that copy-paste is never a good idea and it's a bit of a red line that's been going through our past few podcasts that we need to work with local populations to make policies work. What did you think about that, Sharon? I thought it was a fascinating conversation and Yeah, I was really intrigued by the way in which that theme emerged. And as you say, it's emerged in a number of podcasts now. And I think it's always the message, isn't it, that people matter, the context matters, and the way people live their lives in a context matters. So just cutting and pasting never works. It goes back to our comments at the beginning of this podcast about the importance of deep thinking around policy. And that is also a returning issue on our podcast. Deep thinking seems to be one of the most prominent answers to better policymaking. Thank you, Sharon, for sharing your thoughts there. And listeners, we really love to have your thoughts on the discussion. So please keep sending us your feedback, your questions and your comments, because each week we are going over some of these fantastic contributions that you've made. And the first one I'd like to look at today is a podcast that we recorded last week that was Climate Finance in Asia and the Pacific with Kirsty Anantharaja, Abida Sechuati and Kate Duggan. And on this episode, our expert panel takes a look at why it's so difficult for countries in the Asia-Pacific region to tackle climate change effectively and the hurdles they face in accessing funding to assist energy transitions. And we had a comment by Mark Zanker on our Policy Forum pod group on Facebook. If you're not on there, get on there now. Um, He has written... I felt depressed hearing this podcast. The people in the aid community are working, for example, with the folk in Fiji to build climate change resilience. These people have done nothing to cause the climate crisis in the first place. But as scientists like Sharon Huber and Hansen have pointed out repeatedly, these are the people will suffer the most. In the meantime, here in Australia, we have an election where the governing party really doesn't believe climate change is an issue, despite all the evidence of the co- to the contrary. What do you think about that also in light of the debate yesterday, Sharon? Yeah, look, I think Mark's absolutely right here. And just a shout out to Mark, always makes great comments. So I love having your comments, Mark. Thank you, Mark, for being such a great member of, of our little community. Um, but I think he, he's absolutely right. And our listeners will be used to me banging on about the intergenerational issues in relation to climate change. And I would make the same point as Mark, that the people who are going to suffer most are those who have done nothing to cause it. Um, 
people like those those communities he he talks about um, in parts of the Pacific and future generations. And you know, really, the government of Australia and governments around the world have to take this issue far more seriously. And I think in Australia, you know, one of the debates in the lead up to the election should be around what we are going to do around climate change. I agree, I agree with you, Sharon. And I think it's not only the government that needs to pay more attention to this, but everyone personally, I think we need to all assess what we're doing on a daily basis and see what where we can make our contributions to a better climate and to lowering emissions. I think that's really, really crucial. Thank you for that comment, Mark. And also, we've got a few suggestions for future pods, and we're always really keen to hear your thoughts on what topics we, you'd like us to discuss on the podcast. So if you want to do that, jump into the Facebook group and let us know or reach out to us on Twitter where we are Apps Policy Forum. I would also like to warmly welcome some of our new members, Goodwin, Yadana, Francis Saida, and Michelle NTZ. It's great to have you all on board. And we've got a suggestion here from Mugambi Paul who writes, what are the intended changes of foreign policy for Africa? Bearing in mind Africa is a continent on the rise because of the increase of youth population, innovations, ETC, plus facing many challenges ranging from corruption, scrambling of resources, poverty, poor public service delivery, lack of basic services like water, power, ETC. What do you think about that, Sharon? We don't talk about Africa, uh, about Africa very often. No, I, I think Paul's right, and we probably should be talking about Africa much more. I want to say hi to Paul, one of my particularly wonderful former students, so it's great to see Paul engaged in the podcasts. Um, I think – I agree with Paul, but I think I would almost like to, us to see to, – to see us do a mini-series around Africa. Um, Paul points out all of those issues that we need to be thinking about in relation to Africa, but of course – from afar, we often look at Africa as a continent. Africa is a series of, or is a number of very, very different countries um, with different contexts, different trajectories, different challenges, and different uh, things happening that are very exciting in each of those countries. So maybe, Paul, it's a series on Africa that we need. You're probably right there, Sharon, and I think um, it's really crucial to take a differentiated view on different countries in in Africa because I think a lot of in in many people's minds, Africa has just merged into one big thing, and to untangle that a little bit, I think that would be very very interesting. So a big thank you to everyone who has commented and sent us their suggestions, and please keep sending them in. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum or just drop us a quick line at podcast at policyforum.net. And we'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Julia, cheerio. And from me, Sharon Bessel. Bye-bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.